welcome to a very spooky episode of Safe Station Radio. This week, I'll be your host, Dustin, and with me, I'm Connor. Hi there. And this week, we'll be talking you through the horrifying halls of eternal darkness, sanity's recreation. Requiem? Is it requiem? requiem. Not recreation? <laughs> sanity's recreation. Getting yoked. For the Nintendo GameCube, of course, developed by Silicon Knights back in the day. And Connor grabbed all the research for us this week, so I'm going to let him take it away. Yeah, I did a lot of research, if you count the three full playthroughs of this game as research. Yeah, so this game came out in on June 23rd in 2002 for the Nintendo GameCube. This was published by Silicon Knights, as Dustin said, and published by Nintendo as a... Uh, sort of as a exclusive, they wanted some sort of horror game for their consoles before they signed the whole deal with Capcom to get the Resident Evil remake and then the Resident Evil 0 and 4 and all that kind of stuff. That's for another time. But here they got their horror game by Silicon Knights. And Silicon Knights was founded by Dennis Dyack in 1992, making things like... Things for the Amiga, the Atari, uh, primarily DOS games. They're, the first DOS game that got really big was Blood Omen Legacy of Kane, which I know a lot of people recognize. It was then on the PS1 in 1996. Um, they had a, some sort of scuffle with Crystal Dynamics, which we mentioned before in our Crash 4 episode. By the way, I had no idea that they were the Legacy of Kane people. I I'd assumed this was their first game. For some reason. That Eternal Darkness was their first game? Yeah, I, I didn't know that they were Legacy of Kane before that. Yeah, well, and this is the first Legacy of Kane, which I don't think is similar to the later. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but the Legacy of Kane series was then made by Crystal Dynamics. Going forward, they made the... The ones with Amy Hennig right yeah so the rest of them are not silicon knights they just made the first one yeah okay yeah yeah that was news to me it was interesting yeah so then they crystal dynamics made reached an agreement they split and uh silicon knights partnered with nintendo after some whatever the precursor to e3 was which i'm forgetting the name of now space world I think Space World was the Japanese one. It was something like the, not the Consumer Electronics Show. But it was attached to that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, gotcha. They had a prototype there about, that had sort of like seamless gameplay and cutscene stuff that was pretty huge at the time. I think it was the same exact show that some other, that Final Fantasy was doing it. Uh, like Final Fantasy VII, where they were doing that sort of simultaneous stuff. That was at the exact same show. So Nintendo saw Crystal Di- or saw Silicon Knights with that. We're like, okay, you obviously didn't copy them because it's the same show. So we'll partner up with you and you can make some games for us and whatever. And the game that came out of that was uh, Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem, which was originally supposed to be an N64 title, but then got pushed to be an early GameCube title and came out in 2002. It very much seems to parallel Resident Evil Zero to me. I'm like, this is kind of the same situation where you were making this, you know, um, fixed camera angle horror game 
for the N64, and then they all moved over to the GameCube and all had to remake their stuff. Yeah, that's... And some of that shows in the game, you know, the graphics are not oh, the smoothest, yeah. especially the facial animations. It, it, honestly, but... that did a lot to kind of ground this game for me, where I was like, this feels very dated, even for a GameCube game in some some areas. Some areas actually feel smart, but there was the, it was a lot in learning it was a nice 64 game. I was like, oh, this makes a lot more sense, just in terms yeah. of, like, how things are designed, even. And I heard somewhere, uh, Dustin sent me a podcast from IGL, IGN Unfiltered, I believe it was. Yes. And it was an interview with Dennis Dyack, who we'll get into the rest of the story in a second uh, after that. But they're talking and that's where they scrapped most of their development because they were moving to the GameCube and that's like a huge thing. But they were, were able to save some of the stuff and that's kind of where it looks a little rough around the edges, I think. Yeah, totally. Totally. Because like that era of games totally looks like, you know, it, it still looks dated, but it doesn't look so bad. Like you can you can up-res those games and they still look pretty good. This one totally had the feeling of like, ooh, this one this is a little bit rough visually. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. But then after Eternal Darkness, uh Eternal Darkness sold pretty well back in the day. I didn't get exact numbers on it, but it did pretty good um especially for its budget and it reached a decently large audience, which was surprising for the GameCube. I think it was one of the best-selling GameCube games at the time, which is probably not saying a lot because it very much was not a very popular console. Right. But after that, then they partnered with Konami and Nintendo to make Metal Gear Solid The Twin Snakes in 2004 for the GameCube, which was a remake of the first Metal Gear Solid game. So they worked with Kojima and uh, Konami to make that for the as a GameCube exclusive. And... Uh, I mean, that's pretty much that history there before it all kind of goes to shit. So if you want to. So this for me, talking about our histories with this, this is my first time playing this game. This was a game I had always heard about. Of course, uh, I think most people know about the sanity effects, which we'll kind of get into later. But if you know this game, you know it for that. And I had known about a lot of those just through the years of following games, criticism and stuff like that. But to illustrate this, I thought that this game was tank controlled. <laughs> it super isn't, which is was a really pleasant surprise. Uh, it's actually very playable. Inter- you don't you don't have to get used to a lot of controls. So I was I'm pr- this game was pretty fresh to me. Like I hadn't I realized I hadn't even really seen that much footage of it. Like playing it, I I had it was like almost a completely new experience. So I pretty much don't really have a history with it other than hearing that it was cool throughout the years, but. That's different for you. Yeah, well, I had also heard about it. You know, heard it was this weird, one of the few Nintendo-published M-rated games. It's like that and Bayonetta 2 and... Geist. Geist, and there's a Japanese-only... Oh, what is that? The well, Don't they publish Fatal Frame too? Yeah, it was a Japanese-only Fatal Frame Wii game. I believe it was Fatal Frame 4. And that's like it for their M-rated stuff. So it was always this weird thing that was on the GameCube and it had these cool sanity effects that broke the fourth wall. And that was all, all I really knew. So we went to a game store, one of our uh, favorites that we like to take a long drive to get to. And I saw it there for 
around like 50 60 bucks which is a lot but that's kind of how gamecube games are nowadays and i decided to pick it up because i was really curious and this was about probably about like three years ago and i played a little over half of it but i was really enjoying it and i actually was really into it uh i was expecting a lot worse you know the tank controls or whatever survival horror mechanics but it's really quite accessible honestly um, and the thing that immediately grabbed me more than the sanity effects was the story, and I was really into it. Uh, I fell off probably because I had other things going on, but coming back to it for this, I was actually really invested my entire playthrough. Yeah, and I would say for the most part, I echo that. Um, do we want to give a quick overview of the story before we give our spoiler-free review stuff? Yeah, so the story begins with Alexandra Royvis. She's wakes up in the middle of the night after a nightmare and she sees like zombies or whatever. And then a ghost of her grandfather. Um, but she wakes up and she answers the phone and it turns out her grandfather has been murdered. So she goes to the estate in Rhode Island and begins searching around the house for clues as to how he got murdered. She then stumbles upon a secret room in the mansion, which contains a book that is bound in human skin and bone which is scary and she immediately starts reading it and that's where she starts to learn about all these other people the first of which is Pius who 2000 years ago picked up a relic and uh, became the servant of some ancient god and that's kind of where the story starts from there that's about the first like 15 minutes so if you were running around your house and you found a book that looks as creepy as the Tome of Eternal Darkness, is your first reaction, I'm going to read that? Yeah. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. No, I agree. <laughs> yeah. No. We're on the a same scary page. scary-ass book. Of course I'm going to open it. Yeah, definitely. I guess so to talk about this game in the sense of me playing it for the first time in 2020 and not really having too much expectations, I was shocked at how playable it was. To repeat myself, again, from what little I had seen in this game, which was barely anything, I had assumed it was tank controlled like Resident Evil. Super isn't. It's analog how you expect it to be controlled, which is really nice. I never had a situation where I felt like the controls were failing me like a lot of those old horror games can. So I was really impressed with that alone. I was thankful because I was expecting much worse. I will say in terms of core gameplay, I think the combat doesn't hold up very much. It's not it's not bad in the sense that it will make you lose. It's actually quite easy. I just find it pretty repetitive and dull. It's um it has an interesting like like kind of pre-vats like fallout system where you're targeting specific limbs on enemies, but I found it to be ultimately unnecessary because like 90 percent of the time when you can you just aim for the head <laughs> it seemed to be the most effective way so i did really find it all that useful in the end it also has it does the resident evil thing where to attack you need to plant your feet and i just find that kind of annoying in these kinds of action games which this i would say is more of an action game than a horror game you're doing a lot of combat 
and I just found it to be a little dull, especially towards the end. And there's a lot of bigger enemies towards the end too, where you have to stand still and hack at them and then move and hope you moved in time. It just doesn't really feel graceful enough, if that makes sense, to be satisfying. It kind of feels like I just go in flailing, you know? I, I completely agree with that. The combat initially is super cool, having the ability to target their body parts, but it really boils down to... Uh, chop their head off and then whack at their body until they're dead <laughs> yeah it just it's it starts off good you're right and then it just feels like oh they just didn't build on this enough like it needed more but yeah like certain enemies that are harder to kill but have stronger arms or whatever so you can take off their arms to weaken them and then deal with the weaker enemies but at this point it's basically just like here's a bunch of zombies you can chop their heads off and then uh kill them <laughs> that's pretty much all it amounts to yeah, and you can get ranged weapons as well, but I found for a good percentage of the game, those to be pretty useless. <laughs> um, it's not until later, till you start going up in time, till you start getting guns and stuff, that I found those to be a little more helpful. But still, towards that gameplay, you're still planning your feet, and it's kind of auto-aiming for you, so it just didn't feel... It didn't feel that void for good combat that I needed. Yeah, well, and I found the ranged weapons, especially early on, and then even into the later game... I really found myself using them only on trappers, which are these little yes. scorpion-looking exactly dudes that you can't get close to, and they'll hear you, and then they'll transport you to the trapper dimension, and it'll waste a bunch of time, and that's a whole other thing we'll get into in a second, but since you can't get close enough to the to melee them, I was like, okay, this is where I use my ranged weapons, and that was about it. <laughs> I mean, the regular enemies and then even some of the stronger enemies you can attack with your melee weapon and it'll get you better results yeah i i agree totally this game also has a spell casting system which i think is a bit more interesting and does help a little bit with the uh, sort of variety of combat it's you basically find these runes and then you can combine them to make spells if you are going to play this game for the first time that system looks very intimidating at first don't sweat it. It literally guides you through how to do it once you find a new rune. Like, don't do what I did and think, oh, I have to, like, combine these to make a spell. It'll literally tell you how to do it once you find the correct runes. Um, I wasted a bunch of time trying to put stuff together and make it work. But to cast those spells, like, it'll be spells like two where you can, like, enchant an item to make it more powerful or, more powerful or uh, give yourself more health. Or you can use them for puzzle-solving stuff, like... Finding an invisible door, or stuff like that. And to cast them, you... It's its weird. You basically have to... You either can cast them quickly using the D-pad if you assign them there, or you go into the menu and select them. And then, depending on how powerful you want the spell to be, is how long it takes to charge up. And you can see that visually on the floor. You'll see runes light up. And you have to hold completely still, otherwise the spell won't work, which is an interesting idea, especially in a, especially in a survival horror game like this, where you're you know, you basically have to run to the corner of a room and hope the zombies don't touch you before your spell finishes. I like that in concept. I found oftentimes it really wasn't that big of a deal, though, because this is the kind of game where you can exit a room and re-enter to, you know, to get to safety. So oftentimes, if I was having trouble, I'd just exit the room, cast the spell I needed, and then go back in, which kind of just broke it a little bit. Um, but I do like that idea in concept. Yeah, well, and I actually really liked it in... Uh, there's a boss fight sort of towards the end where you have to use a magical attack on it. And I was like, okay, I can use a stronger variety because I have a bunch of extra magic and I can sort of juice that a little bit. But oh, So I'll just use the stronger variety. But 
it actually was more beneficial to use a weaker attack because it charged faster and I could move away and dodge attacks faster than to use the stronger one. But again, that's kind of the only place where I had to worry about that. Otherwise, it's I don't want to waste all my magic, so I'll use a weaker one, or I can just stand here in a safe room, either just through the door, because enemies don't go through the doors, just on the other side of a door of a bunch of enemies, cast a stronger spell, and then go in. But the other thing is that the magic, you have a magic meter, you know, pretty standard for video games, and it recharges slowly over time, and you there's one item in the game that restores it, but that's only for a certain character, and it has five uses and it's done, and you get it at the end of that dude's chapter anyway, but in, so in order to refill your magic, you have to be walking, you have to be moving. Yes, so it doesn't recharge over time, it recharges based on your movement, which is interesting and you say it feels slowly i feel like it was i feel like i almost never had a situation where i didn't have it um like that boss fight you were talking about i ran into some trouble but i think that was like one of the only moments in the game or when i would mess up and cast the wrong super powerful spell i'd have to walk around for a second to get my magic back but like what an interesting choice for a survival horror game to have one of your resources be replenishable at any moment (laughs) you know it feels like an odd decision yeah especially since one of the spells you can cast restores your other two meters. So if you're starving for health or sanity, which we'll also get into in a second, then you can just cast a restore spell and then walk in circles and then cast it again and then walk in circles until you're at full health again, which is what I found myself doing when I would get too spell happy and cast like level seven shield and a magic pool and a bunch of other stuff and i'm like oh now i need to cast a reveal invisible spell so i'll just walk in circles for a little bit and restore a bunch of magic which happened to me on a number of times and i think i said it earlier but i did play this game fully three times uh there's a secret ending which uh makes sense in context as to why you have to play it and three play the game three times to unlock it but I wanted to see that and I knew I had I knew I had time. So I started playing this game in late August <laughs> and it's uh just about a week before Halloween when we're recording this, so you'll be hearing this on Halloween. So yeah, I, I prepared, I played this game three full times and that can slow down the pace, I'll tell you what, if you have to run in circles to refill your magic. I mean, even on my one playthrough, I was getting a little bit frustrated with that. And I think that that kind of gets exacerbated towards the end of the game, where there are just sections of the game that I think are flat out bad, and the game takes a really steep dive in quality. (laughs) Um, And I think that that certainly didn't help, where I felt like I needed to constantly cast magic, but I was constantly running out, so I had to run around in circles, and it it just got boring, unfortunately, towards the end. I, you know, that didn't make it a bad game or anything, but I do think that it's one of my biggest criticisms here, is it, it feels like it's being, it's, it's really good up until the last, like, three hours, <laughs> which I think is just, like, one of my major issues with it, is, like, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold it all the way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would agree with that sorry i was pulling up my notes but i was gonna talk about the uh magical spell crafting system 
where you have to use the runes to make a a spell. And you're right that it completely guides you through the process. If you know where to look and get your runes and uh, spell sheets and all that, then it'll literally craft the spell for you if you have all the components, which is super handy so that you don't waste a bunch of time not having a spell that you need to progress. Well, and the problem too is I wish it told you that because you can, if you... Like, you can stumble on to casting the spell before you have some of the stuff, but it doesn't give it to you. Because that happens Yeah, so if you, if you craft a spell that you don't have the spell sheet for, act, the co- not the codex, the yeah, the codex for the spell itself, if you craft that either just by accident because you're messing around or whatever then it will save it in your menu, but it won't tell you what it does or the name of it. It'll just say like spell five, which I think is actually really cool because if you want to mess around with it, you might get spells that you you can get them before you're supposed to and then be able to use them or figure out what they do on your own. Or if you miss a spell codex, then you can just like uh, figure out what they what it does by brute force. Oh, you know what? I'm realizing I'm an idiot because I feel like that happened, and I went. I assumed I wouldn't be able to cast it. <laughs> yeah, no, you could still cast them. It just won't tell you what it does. Okay, then I I I take back what I said about the spell thing being annoying. <laughs> That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's super cool because especially if you're going for that secret ending by playing the game three times, then you can. Uh, the way the runes are split up, there's four alignment runes, three, and then there's a secret one that you can unlock. And then there's uh, verb and noun runes. So if you know how to combine them, something like absorb, you pick your alignment and then you pick absorb item, then it'll enchant your item. It'll absorb things to the item. So that makes sense. Uh, but you have to have the spell codex to know what the rune is. And then you can sort of intuit that but if you don't have the spell codex then you can still use the rune and craft things with it which i think is super cool because then if you already have played the game and you know what the spells do then you can use them earlier uh the big example that i was writing down was you can get the magical attack spell as early as like six chapters before it's actually needed and then the magical area spell you can get like four chapters before it it actually gives you the codex and you can use those in areas that it might be really helpful for, but you didn't have them before. So you can kind of break the game a little bit by doing that. Not anything crazy, but it it's really cool and satisfying to pull off, especially on repeated play, playthroughs. Yeah, that, that's actually interesting. Uh, I apologize to Eternal Darkness for my mistakes. <laughs> uh, that, that, that is super cool. So we talked about the magic, and then we talked about the health. It's health. That's self-explanatory. Um, do you want to talk about the sanity, the third yeah. element? And I think let's um, let's let's not talk too specifically about the sanity effects until we get spoilers. Because I think you know if you're listening to this and have never played it, that's kind of the best part of the game, in my opinion. And just, you know, you should experience those on your own. So let's just talk vaguely about it. Maybe put them into categories or something. But yes, the third meter you have, other than health and magic, is your sanity meter. Which again, much like the magic meter being filled up by walking, is an interesting choice. Because the game acts like it's a punishment to have low sanity. When 
I viewed that as like the meat of the game, which is interesting. Uh, so I like never filled up that meter. I like basically didn't touch that meter at all. It was almost always empty because I thought that, that was cool. Yeah, um, when I told really you before you started you playing, that much. yeah, I was like, "Hey, you should probably if you want to see all these sanity effects, you should probably keep your sanity low." And it's actually pretty easy to fill your sanity because when you defeat an enemy, then it'll fall down, and you have a chance to perform a finishing move on it, which the animations are goofy as hell for. The <laughs> Little jiggy, little jiggy. They throw the sword into the guy. I love that one. (laughs) It looks so stupid. But doing that will refill your sanity. And the way you lose sanity is by enemies looking at you and their eyes will flash green and then your sanity meter will drop. But the amount that them looking at you drains is the same amount that you will get by finishing them off. So it's actually pretty easy to just keep your sanity pretty high if you're diligent about that. Plus, you can use a restore spell to restore it as well. But if you do that, then you miss out on all the fun sanity effects. <laughs> you know, you, you talked about the story of this game. I think the story is fine. I didn't think it was, like, amazing or anything. I genuinely think that the reason to play this game is the sanity effects. So, interesting decision is what I'll say about it. It's like, it feels, it, feels, it feels like that meter shouldn't be there and it should just almost always be low sanity. <laughs> Yeah, well, and if your sanity gets completely empty and then you continue to lose sanity, it'll actually start draining health instead. So it is definitely a punishment to have low sanity, but then you miss out on a part of the game. So <laughs> Yeah, and again, I just think that like you can get health back so easy that I barely noticed that. Like You're right, you do lose health if you have no sanity, but it's, just like, it's like you lose it in such small amounts and you can always reheal yourself. It just... It never really was an issue. I The only time I ever finished off enemies was when I was frustrated and needed them gone to save or whatever, which, again, was not that often. <laughs> yeah, I will say that I kept my sanity meter low for the first playthrough, but then uh, high for the second and third because I wanted to speed through it. So, you know, the sanity meters do... The sanity effects do slow you down in some sense by having some random stuff happen but so if you're trying to blast through it especially on repeated playthroughs i can see why you would keep it high but uh, i will say if you're going for the sanity meters if that's the reason this sounds interesting or the reason you picked up the game then intentionally keep it low the last thing i want to talk about is the areas themselves that you're visiting uh there's only a couple of them i think for the most part they're really cool they're cool ideas but you go back to them all the time throughout the game. What there's like four areas, and you're going, you go back to each one like four different times, and they expand a little bit, and you get more, more areas to explore, as you know, you go to different centuries, and these places have changed slightly. But I did find myself with one area in particular pretty bored with it. Just like on the third time I visited it, it was pretty done. Also, a lot of them are just very linear. And if you happen to forget to pick up an item or whatever, you have to run all the way back and then run all the way to where you were. And I just, that that kind of design, that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, that makes me, that makes it understandable that this was an N64 game. Where there was one chapter in particular where you had to pick up letters that I forgot to grab the first one and had to run all the way through the level to go get it. And then run all the way back, which was pretty frustrating. To, to be honest, it's a, 
bit of a minor complaint, but it is one that I noticed and did uh, frustrate me a bit. Yeah, well, and on repeated playthroughs, you know, or in my case, I also had a guide with me. I have the uh, official Nintendo Power magazine guide, which I also loaned to Dustin when he played it, but I don't know if you looked at it that much. Yeah, I looked at it uh, when I needed it. I My philosophy with guys is I only use them when I'm frustrated. <laughs> so Yeah, and that's completely and I, fair. And I, I, I will totally bash my head against a wall forever until I give up and do it. Like, I'm stubborn about it, so... Yeah, well, but even still, if you have a guide or you are playing the game again and you know what's happening, there are still points where you have to backtrack in order to progress forward. Uh, there's one specific moment where you have to go forward up into a point and collect a bunch of letters. And then you have to go back and talk to a guy in a clock tower that's at the start of the level. And then you have, you get an item from him after doing that. And then you have to go all the way back to where you were to use the item. I think that's probably one of the only times other than like the end of the game, which I know frustrated you where you have to do, specifically just straight up backtracking but even still when you get to different chapters that take place in one of the four locations it can feel kind of samey because it is technically the same area like yeah the aesthetics are changed and i actually really like that where you're in a different time period so the environment's different but you can kind of see how it's similar yeah it's cool but if you find that a little dull or samey and get bored of an area then i could see why that would be frustrating yeah it's just like that in the same level having to go back and forth back and forth was i found to be particularly frustrating and i think it's at the core of the problem is it's just these levels are designed to be linear they're not designed to be you know like to compare it to other survival horror they're not resident evil levels you know, where in, like, Resident Evil 2, the police department, sure, you're backtracking and going to the same areas in that place a lot, but there were, like, five different ways to get to the same area in that place. And some of them will be cut off at certain times, some of them will be more dangerous or less dangerous. So it keeps that experience feeling fresh and exciting and horrifying. Whereas this is like, well, I went down that hallway just a second ago, you know, maybe a sanity effect will happen and that'll be different, but, like, I already killed all those enemies, so it's just me running through an empty hallway. <laughs> Yeah, well, Resident Evil also has the added benefit of the fact that the enemies, like, stick around, or their corpses will, and then if you're visiting an area multiple times, but you don't have ammo, then you might consider killing them, or sparing them and running past, and then I know the remake has, like, the Crimson Heads, and that's a whole other thing, but this, when you kill an enemy, it just disappears, and it's yeah, gone it's forever. it's definitively dead. <laughs> so... It literally just vanishes, it burns up or whatever. So you kill the enemy, and then if you backtrack, then you just are going through a bunch of empty rooms again. So that's, you know, it's not as interesting. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to know is make sure you save often. Uh, this kid does not have auto-saving, which is understandable from this generation, but just every time you're in a room without enemies, it'll let you save and I recommend you do that, um, especially with this backtracking issue we're talking about. That can get really frustrating, especially towards the end of the game. It happened to me, where I died and lost about like 20, 30 minutes of progress. And it's like very bad. <laughs> and I had to redo a bunch of stuff. So just save all the time. 
Yeah, because this is one of those where if you die, it boots you back to the title screen. So just save every option you have. There's one part of the game where it takes the ability to save away from you, and that's like the worst part of the game. Because if you die, then you have to do all of it again. All right, anything else? Did we miss anything? Um, no. I mean, we'll get into the different gods and the alignments and the story and all that, so... I will say quickly, I you know I I was talking shit a lot. I did enjoy this game. I did. It was it was fun. I had a great time with it, and I, and I did think the story was relatively interesting. I liked the sanity effects a lot. I liked the different characters a lot. I liked the different time periods a lot. Like I think there's a lot to like here. I just just I know I came off really negative there. I'm not. I did enjoy the experience quite a bit. Yeah. Well, and I having played this game like three and a half times now because I played the first half before like three years ago. Uh, I still really enjoyed this game. You know, there's a reason why I stuck through it for three whole playthroughs and it's actually pretty fun. You know, even when you're past the sanity effects and the novelty of the story, the gameplay is solid enough to hold its own, especially if you start messing around with the magic. And, you know, I've, I found it just really enjoyable to play and then the story as well kept me engaged throughout. So I would say definitely go play this. But if you're looking for an original GameCube copy, that's going to be pretty expensive. I know I bought it three years ago for about 60 bucks, And that's pretty steep for a GameCube game, I'm aware. Nowadays, it's like 80 to $150. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I loaned my copy to Dustin so that he could play it for this episode because I was not about to make him spend $150 on a weird GameCube game. Nope. <laughs> I appreciate that. So um, yeah, I mean, if you're looking to play this, maybe you're willing to shell out 80 bucks for a obscure GameCube game. I would say have fun. <laughs> it's worth it. I guess if you're collecting it, otherwise just play it on an emulator. That's probably how most people are going to play it anyways. Yeah, that's that's what I would recommend to somebody who thought this game was pretty cool, but definitely not worth that amount of money. It's it's interesting, but don't don't spend hundred dollars on it. It's it's cool. It's not that cool. <laughs> yeah, unless you're a GameCube collector, in which case you've already heard about this game and you yeah. may have already bought it. So, and plus, if you're playing it on an emulator, yeah, the sanity effects won't, the fourth wall breaking stuff won't have the same effect, but they already don't because it's not 2002 and you're probably playing this on a flat screen TV now. So, you know, it's whatever at this point. Yeah, totally. There, the sanity effects, we didn't really talk about it, but they're more cheesy than they are cool, I guess. And that's, that's not to degrade them. They're still fun. Um, yeah. They're but, not very you know. scary. <laughs> no, not at all. There was one moment in the skin that scared me and that was it. This is, even though we're playing this for Halloween, again, I said it earlier, this is a little bit, this is more of an action game than it is a horror game. Yeah, there's some spooky elements, but it's not very scary. It's it, it's honestly, and I don't know if people get mad, it reminded me more of Resident Evil 5 than it did of, you know, Resident Evil 2 Remake or whatever. <laughs> like, like it's, it's a little bit more combat and, you know, watching cutscenes than it is actually experiencing a horror video game. So if you're going in for a horror game, be aware. If you're going in for an action or weird story game, then I think you got something. Yeah. A spooky story game. 
Alright, well, we're going to get on to spoilers, which, so, you know, we'll see you all next week. Next couple weeks. favorite character okay so i don't know if it was my favorite character necessarily but the first time we go back to the mansion and for the first time we get the um is it maximilian ravis the first ravis we play as yep yes so i don't know if it is my favorite character but that's definitely my favorite section because it just surprised me where i didn't expect to be exploring that mansion in the past i thought that was really cool because it recontextualized that area. Like, I liked that the library hadn't been built yet. Like, that, to me, was one of the coolest things about the time jumping in this game, was that bit. I also shout out to Luther. I thought that was cool. You know, this character who totally shouldn't have been there. <laughs> I feel bad for him. Yeah, I'd probably say those two. Uh, maybe also the firefighter, just because that felt so different. Even Michael though... Edwards. I, yeah, even though of the stories, his felt the most forced... Where he just he's fighting this fire here, then he falls down the thing, and then he's going to go find the essence, I guess, for some reason. Like, why would he do that? He has no tie to this. But um, but I I liked his section because that's also where they gave you the machine gun, which was the first time I thought, oh, the gun's actually useful here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, that cutscene was super different in the beginning of his too, which gave it some more variety. The pre-rendered one. Yeah, it's like oh weird. <laughs> Oh, wow, it's a pre-rendered cutscene. I mean, yeah. there's a couple others, but they still look like the rest of the game. Yeah, it just felt different. It felt like a different game, which is kind of cool. Yeah, so I would have to say my favorite character is probably... Oh, uh, Michael Edwards is definitely up there. Um, you want know to shout out to that Indiana Jones dude? Who's that, Lindsay? <laughs> yeah. Um, Straight Indiana Jones knockoff. <laughs> What is his name? Uh, Edward Lindsay. Yeah. Um, I do want to, as, as long as we're talking about, and I was going to go through like a full plot synopsis, but that's, that's lame. That's going to take too long. So as long as we're talking about Edward Lindsay, the real Indiana Jones guy. So, I mean, I guess we should start at the beginning of the story. At least the Alexandra reads the book. The first story is Pius, and Pius goes to a city or a temple that's underground. He's lured there, and he gets a artifact that then turns him into an undead slave to whichever god, and you get to pick which of the three gods uh, you get to assign Pius to, basically. Uh, the three gods are Mantarok, Zelatoth, and Ulioth. Ulioth is blue, Zelatoth is green, and Chaturga is red. Mantarok is purple. So, how do you get the Mantarok one? Because that's not an initial choice. Yeah, so those three elements get are what Pius is assigned to, basically. The Mantarok... Are you talking about the Mantarok um, alignment rune? Yeah. The alignment rune is hidden in Edwin Lindsay's chapter. Oh, weird. the Indiana Jones guy. So it's not a thing you can select at the beginning. 
no no that's why you only do three playthroughs is because you pick a different god that Pius gets to be assigned to for each of the playthroughs and then at the end there's a secret ending i will say i like that character a lot Pius augustus but man every time he showed up in that that roman empire was hilarious to me in the roman empire guard yeah it's just like very cartoony in like a really silly way i'm like dude it's been two thousand years (laughs) change some clothes and he does change some clothes that's what i was gonna say is um in edwin Lindsay's chapter uh he ventures to the temple area which we've been to before in a previous chapter and he's traveling with a guy who looks straight up like um the villain in who framed roger abbott (laughs) 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 um and he's traveling with a guy who looks straight up like um, the villain in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he's traveling with a guy who looks straight up like um, the villain in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This can't be happening! This character's name is Paul Augustine. And then, like, almost immediately, like, within three minutes of the cutscene starting, he drops the disguise and is like, it's Pius Augustus, and he's shooting Lindsay with a gun. It's like, okay, why did he bother with the disguise? He fucking yeah. looks evil. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's, and it's I love that really silly. He has a couple disguises, I think, in the game. That's the only one I really remember. But all of them start with all of them have the same initials as Pius Augustus, which I also, yes. also think is funny. It's very funny. He's a, he's weird. <laughs> I think he's secretly like a little bit of a goofball. I will say talking about all these characters, it's cool that there are so many characters. Uh, I wish there had been a little bit more women. Yeah, that's completely fair. There's two. Um, you know, I, I will say there's a couple of people of color, which is nice, but. But, you know, just Alexandria and um, the other one who's described his main character trait is she was a slave girl. <laughs> you could have um, done a little Elia. bit better there. Yeah. Um, you know, I... I whatever. <laughs> it's an old game. I kind of, you know, could see maybe that mentality wasn't there. But just while I'm talking about stuff that rubbed me a bit the wrong way, that was definitely one of them. And I do like Alex as a character, to be fair. Yeah, when she's the main character of the story, which I also thought was pretty yes. cool. Yeah, to- totally, totally, totally. It's just weird when we have all of these, like, you know, when there's a bunch of different characters and, like, only one of them is a woman. That seems a bit strange. So what was your favorite section? Um, I think probably Michael Edwards in terms of gameplay. You know, he does have the machine gun. He has... Yeah. It's the second to last chapter in the game, so you have all of the spells that you're going to get in the game, and I thought that was really fun to experiment with. He's also just a super cool dude. He's this down-to-earth black guy that is a firefighter in, I guess, uh, Persia? Where is that? Yeah, in Persia. Fighting a fire there after some war or something. I kind of missed out on the backstory for him but uh i I like that guy as a character weird 
point in that chapter where you get those snake things that come up and it's like, oh, it's a boss fight and they take like one hit. <laughs> yeah, they show up in a couple later too. Yeah, they co- show up in a couple segments, but they have a cutscene every time they show up and they're like, oh, and then it immediately cuts back to gameplay and you can kill them in one hit and then they're gone and they never respawn. It's it is weird. the weirdest weird thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Maybe they were a boss fight at one point. I don't know. Yeah, I feel maybe they just got cut for time. So, yeah, the the game follows Alex as she reads different chapters of the book, and then you play as the chapter as that character. And then between chapters, you play as Alex to use a piece of information that she learned in the book, whether it's a new spell or just some item that she learned about. And then you solve a puzzle, and then you get the next chapter page, and that's how you progress with the game. That's... a uh, really cool uh structure i think for this to split up the chapters you know you get back to the main character and then you're doing both stories simultaneous until the very end when you get to just play a whole section as alexandra totally i I agree and i like the mansion as sort of your hub area with her i think it's like it's like cool enough to want to explore but not so big that it's frustrating so i i think that that was fun and um, the puzzles are very simple, but that's okay. Because, you know, to be honest, I want to get to these new characters. I want to see what they're about. So I think that that makes sense and is smart. Yeah, I definitely think. I, I really like the structure. It has a nice pacing, too, where no chapter feels overly long, with the exception of... Well... <laughs> uh, yeah, so the exceptions are Edward Royvis and uh, Michael Edwards, I think, does run a little bit long. And then Alexander's at the end. Yeah, I don't. I didn't. Michael's didn't bother me, but the 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 Royvises, the two last ones, where you are literally doing this exact same thing, this exact same very boring section, twice. I I absolutely hated. <laughs> like, yeah, get into that because this section is definitely the worst part of the game. <laughs> so this is towards the end of the game where, um, and for me it was Zelatoth. This you're destroying the city where the um. I guess where all the monsters live is what it implied to me, mm-hmm. where the monsters are coming from. Um, yeah, so where all the, the guardians, the live. horrors and the zombies and all that stuff, and it's underneath the manor that most of the game takes place in. Though there's a weird moment where Augustus is talking to Zelatov, and they imply that there are way more cities like this, which is interesting because they don't really do anything with it. I guess in Edward's chapter, you blow up another one, right? Yeah. So. The whole point, the whole goal of Pius's God, whichever one you pick, in your case, you picked Zelatoth. Um, they need a ritual in order to bring Zelatoth to the Earth dimension. And uh, there's some key parts of that ritual. The first is Mantarok needs to be sealed. Mantarok is the god that controls all the rest of them. So... Mantarok lives in the Kimmer temple and needs to be sealed and defeated so that they can't overtake it. Another key component is they need to construct a pillar of flesh, just a bunch of bodies all buried together. Um, So that's in the Persian temple. And they also need the summoning spell, which is a nine point rune, and that's in the city underneath the manor. And then... What's the other the 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 um the church? 
Yeah. Uh, and then I guess the other part is they just don't, they need their relic to not be destroyed. <laughs> yes. So they appoint guardians to watch the relics. Um, yeah. So yeah, the city section. So you go down underneath the manor and you do this twice, mind you, in a, in a row almost. And you get there and essentially you are doing a big manual version of the spells so it's kind of looks like a big machine where you have to go to each point hit a on it and then run to the middle of the machine where it'll teleport you up above where you then can select the rune you want to show up down below which is a really cool idea and i love the scale of it like it feels big and i love that the issue is once you do that you go back to the teleporter and it puts you in a random area in the city and then you have to run all the way back to the machine and do it again and you do this what is it nine times seven nine times? times yeah nine times and this area is the least interesting in the game like these other areas have they take place in like a catholic church and uh in this area in persia and this cool manor and uh the other one <laughs> but all of those areas are like really dope and fun to look at and interesting to explore and yes yeah, sometimes the backtracking gets annoying but they're interesting this city underground is the lamest most boring section of the game art wise i just think it's generic as hell and so, like, on top of not being interesting to look at, it's also just, there's so much, there's a lot of combat there, which, again, I think is a weak point of this game. And also, there are, in the second time you go through, there are, like, so many trappers, and it just gets so frustrating, because the trappers teleport you to, a like, another dimension or whatever, and you have to basically run through it, uh, run to the end of it by hoping you get the right teleportation thing, and go back to normal only to get trapped again and go back to that thing like it happened to me all the time and it's just this really frustrating area where you are it just feels like it goes on forever and there's no story it's just lame yeah well and it also doesn't help that you get teleported to a, nine different areas so there's nine different rooms that you can you then have to go to to get back to the center machine to teleport to the next tower but Sometimes they're just connected through other rooms. So you have to go through the same rooms again. Maybe you've already killed all the enemies or you're avoiding the enemies, in which case you just run through it. And it's like, okay, that's kind of boring. I already did this room. I'm done. This this gameplay doesn't really support a more open level design. It's It supports a linear game design, which is cool. But then when they expect you to do a lot of backtracking or a lot of exploration then it kind of falls apart well it doesn't feel like exploration because you can only go in one direction it just yeah, it's frustrating yeah. it's just it's a frustrating section for you know and it really does make the game take like a quality nosedive that is incredibly frustrating for somebody who was for the most part enjoying this game and for them to make you do it twice is like almost unforgivable <laughs> like and they're I have so no long idea who too thought. yeah they take like a couple hours a piece and they're so boring. <laughs> yeah. And the second time I didn't, I saved once the beginning of the process and died on accident and then had to fucking redo half of it. And I was so mad. <laughs> like, I was so yeah, angry. This is why we say save all yes. the time. <laughs> yes. And yeah, and it just, it, it also can highlight how some of the spell stuff can be a little bit janky. There's one room in particular where you have to use a a magic attack spell to get out of it. 
but there's not really an indication that that's what you need to do, and that's where I found the guide helpful. It just has runes of the walls, like all, all three of the main um, alignments, to which the last times I've seen that, I thought, oh, I needed to do either Dispel Magic or Reveal Invisible to figure out what's over there. And nope, you have to use one magic attack spell and it'll go attack all of them at once. It's just kind of nonsense based on yeah, the logic no of the sense. game so far. Um, there's also one puzzle in the chapter before that with uh, Edwards where, with uh, Michael Edwards, I think it was hit with him, um, where there's a stone pillar in the way and to the solution to that puzzle is to summon a trapper and get the trapper to teleport that, which again, that like that hadn't come up before at all in the game like i didn't even know you could teleport uh non-living objects so well you teleport a dead body in peter jacobs chapter Uh, yeah i guess that's true but i don't know there was something about this one that felt weird especially when again for stuff like this like dispel magic or reveal invisible is the solution before (laughs) it just feel it felt bad i thought that was cool the main thing that was a problem with that is that uh, when the trapper teleports something, it sends out the shockwave, and then something that's... If you're trapped in it, then it teleports you to the trapper dimension. But... with So I was like, okay, I'll use the trapper, and then I'll go up to... And I think the symbol on the rock is the summon uh, rune surrounded by a three-point power circle. So it's kind of like, okay, do a three-point summon cell, which is summon trapper. But if you just put the trapper next to it and then teleport, it does nothing. You have to actually target the block and then ta- and then teleport. And I think that inherently that's the issue, is I didn't realize that was a targetable thing. Yeah, it's really lame there. It's a bit janky. Um, what I will say about that, though, when you have the summon trapper and you teleport things like that block or the dead body, they actually then show up in the trapper dimension for the rest of the game. Yes, uh, that I did think that that block being at the end was a pretty cool detail, even if it frustrated me. And every time I looked at it, I'm like, ooh, that block. <laughs> I assume if you teleport enemies with it, the enemies will also show up there. But it I seemed never found a use for that. Random whether or not there were enemies in that room at all. <laughs> Back to the um the the forgotten city or whatever the ancient city or whatever that was. Um, there's also another room that I think is legitimately broken where um you there's this purple floor and if you step on it was it was it the same worm creature from before yeah yeah different just the same yeah worm so if it, it'll come and it'll block the door basically so you have to like tiptoe across it which again i did not know was a mechanic in this game <laughs> until just then uh, which i guess is probably how you get around trappers but i never used it um, yeah that is how you get around trappers but it's so much easier to just shoot them <laughs> Like, it'll freak them all out, and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to get you, but you just shoot them, and they're dead. <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, if you step on that thing, the worm will come out, and then your, your entire screen will go, like, sepia tone, and the door will be locked, and there's nothing you could do about it, and I think is what's supposed to happen is that's supposed to lift at some point, but for me, it never did, and I spent literally, like, 10 minutes walking around that room going, what do I do? What do I yeah, do until so I lift lifts, the guide? It lifts when you restore sanity yeah that was never clear and i even looked at the guide and i don't even think it said that or maybe it did i don't know i basically just reloaded my save (laughs) that's fair which luckily i had saved at the beginning of that room so yeah the game slightly hints at this because when you go through that room as 
Edward Royvis. Uh, when he goes through it, he, the worms appear and it goes sepia tone. And then he takes his flask and drinks it and he, it shuts off. And if you look at the flask in your inventory, you know that it restores sanity. So I guess you, they figured you might be able to piece that together, but no, then not Edward a good enough hit. <laughs> no, because then Edward doesn't have to deal with them. So you could just completely forget That's that. A terrible hint. Forget it even happened. It oh wasn't until like the second or third playthrough I was like, "Oh, that's where they're hinting about that." And I was like, "That's not a good hint." No, that's really bad. Yeah. Anyway, I'll stop complaining about that section. Those sections, I guess, they're bad. They're just straight up bad. It sucks. It totally mires the experience in a really frustrating kind of way. Especially since it's right at the end. So, like, if you have a positive game and then you're like, "Oh god," yeah. it just taints the rest of the game. And, man, it wouldn't stick out so much if they didn't make you do it twice. Twice. Like, who who, who thought of that, honestly? Or um, if you want the true ending, six times. <laughs> yeah, really frustrating. Um, we didn't really talk about it, but what was your favorite sanity effect? Ooh, yeah. Oh, there's a couple. So, one of my favorites is one of the story-exclusive ones. And that is in Maximilian Royvis's story, you can go into a room and then you walk forward and it'll show the door to uh, like like has bars on it like it's a jail, which once you get to the end of it and you see that Edward or Maximilian gets thrown in an insane asylum and that's the door to the insane asylum cell. So you get to see it sort of before it actually happens. I thought that was really cool. Yes, I I really enjoyed that as well. My favorite um, one is definitely the one where your character just shrinks. It's so <laughs> funny. Every time. It's oh, no. so funny. Like there he goes. it's not even it's not <laughs> scary in any way. I have no idea why. It's it's hilarious. It's so stupid. Um, I paired that one with the one where you just sink into the floor. That one's also pretty good. You just go, oh no, there he goes. He's he's, (laughs) bye-bye. Yep. Yeah, it's real dumb. Uh, There Um, was also one I encountered where all the enemies were tiny. (laughs) (laughs) It's also very good. (laughs) It's real stupid. Loved it. One of them that I did think was interesting. I'm not going to say cool because it's kind of it's kind of rough it's when you come out of a chapter with low sanity there's a chance that it will um the game will stop and it'll show a to be continued screen and it'll say to be continued in eternal darkness sanity's redemption and i thought that that was cool to be like oh this is the end of the game and now you're gonna have to wait for the story like that's a kind of a cool gotcha moment but also it's kind of presumptuous that you might get a sequel. <laughs> like, I know it's oh, not real, but this is literally the saddest thing in the world. When media does this and this game does this too, where a character has a line like, Oh, this is only the beginning. And you're like, Ooh. <laughs> and it's the only game. It's like, yeah, I guess I'm stuck it's at the not, beginning. Though. It's not though. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I shout out to all the fourth wall breaking. This can't be happening. Yeah. I guess I'm Ooh, stuck at the not, beginning. Though. It's not though. Um, yeah, I, you know, I shout out to all the fourth wall breaking stuff. It's super cute and fun. Um, I think that 
yeah, like I said, there's like two categories of those. There's the cute ones that don't hold up at all, like the volume on the TV and the blue screen. <laughs> okay. And then there's the ones that I think are legit clever, like the one where it deletes your save after you save. Yeah, that one's super great. The other one that I really like, the fourth wall breaking one, is when you walk into a room and it says your controller's disconnected as enemies yes. just kill you. Yes, it's also very good. Also, shout out to the one where you open your inventory and nothing's there. <laughs> it's like, it's oh moment. no, my inventory. <laughs> yeah, that was basically my reaction for the majority of these was, ah, you got me. <laughs> you got That's me. That's cute. If you do want to see these, but you don't want to actually play the game, we'll put a link to a video of just all of them. I'm sorry, the video quality is really bad. It's the only video that has all of them. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's there. Uh, there's some really interesting ones that tie into the story that I thought are really interesting. Another common sanity effect is it'll cut back to Alex, and she's talking with her grandfather's ghost, and he says some pretty bullshit lines. <laughs> But it's fake oh, and not real, so... Yeah, I got that one. Yeah, there's a couple of them. Yeah, uh... Also, shout out to the one where your just head pops off. You can go pick it yeah, up. Yeah, and... <laughs> you just pick up your head, like, uh... In Alex's chapter, yeah, you pick up your head as an item, and then it does the entire, um... Hamlet, alas, poor Yorick speech. <laughs> like, alright, that's pretty funny. Yeah, it's... They're they're super fun like yeah yeah they're cute um i enjoyed them quite a bit um i want to talk about the one boss the one of the two boss fights in this game the one with peter jacob what did you think about that you played the zelatoth edition thought like I, i agree with what you said earlier about casting the magic and having you know it being smarter to actually cast less powerful spells i think that was kind of a cool moment um, even though that you don't really need to pay attention to that the rest of the game, but I thought it was cool there. I will say it was very finicky whether that would work at all, and I found that you needed to be pretty close to the monster, but not too close. And I just thought that, that was a little annoying for the. F- it, this was only a problem for the second round when they were spawning zombies, because sometimes the magic attack I just find wouldn't connect. But that's the only problem I have with it. I enjoyed the fight um, for as much as I don't love the combat in this game i thought it worked out fairly well yeah i thought it was interesting and it wasn't until like my second playthrough that i realized that the magic attack you don't have to aim it it just hits everything except sometimes it doesn't i felt like sometimes it would just hit the zombies and i was like okay yeah so the boss's hit detection is weird because there's a point after it casts a spell that it will then cast a healing spell and you have to wait for it to finish casting the spell but before it while it starts healing that's when the attack has to connect so if you mess up that timing then nothing happens and that's frustrating that definitely happened to me a couple times because then you have to walk back and forth and refill your magic enough so that you can cast another spell or cast a recovery spell if the zombies got you and that's a whole whole thing but yeah a really cool part about this fight is that the enemy and I guess about the whole game is that the enemies are different for each alignment. Oh, so when you pick an and pick an alignment at the start of the game with pious, it locks that alignment for the entire game and the enemies actually change to be the same alignment as the God that you chose at the beginning. And then with the games, rock, paper, scissors, 
effect of which god beats which then you'll have info on which god the enemies are going to be aligned to so you can use the one that's more powerful than it to deal more damage and all that which is super cool and the boss fight here in peter jacob's story and all of the stronger enemies like the the horrors and the guardians those are going to have different effects or just straight up different enemy designs so that's actually really cool for playing multiple playthroughs is you get different boss that has the same attacks and the same strategy but it looks different and it attacks slightly different so um definitely look up the enemy designs if you want to see that but some of them have slightly different properties i think the most distinct is the zombies the red ones for the god chaturga have more health and they're harder to kill and they can also regrow body parts if you leave them alone for long enough the zelatoth ones the green ones uh drain more sanity and their body parts will just be phantoms after you cut them off so they can still use them which is particular particularly notable about the head because then it can continue to drain sanity also when they attack you they drain sanity with their attacks and then the uliath ones the blue ones can drain magic when they attack you and if they are knocked down to low enough health they will start singing and they will they'll get all of the other blue zombies to sing with them and if you let them sing long enough they'll explode and deal a bunch of damage to you oh i guess that happened to me a couple of times and i was caught off guard by it because it doesn't happen that often i guess well yeah because if you cut off their head they can't sing so yeah most of the time you're not going to see that um and then there's also purple zombies which are super weak and whatever uh but then certain other stuff that i won't detail in as much detail as that but like the horrors some of them have heads that are weaker but some of them don't have eyes so like the blue ones you can sneak past because they don't have eyes and then they can't deal sanity damage because they don't have eyes to look at you and then the guardians the strongest of the basic enemies are just completely different designs like they don't even have any similarities the zelatov ones are like the two corpses that are sewn together you remember those enemies are you talking about the dudes with like wings no so those are those are different but those all play out the same. They just have slightly different designs. No, the ones after that, the guardians that only show up like three times in the game. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I got you. It, in the Zelatoth route, they look like two corpses stitched together without heads. For like Ulioth, they're these floating jellyfish things. Um, and then Ch- Chaturga, I believe, are these gross looking spider scorpion dudes. And those all play like completely different. They have different strategies. So... All of that's super cool. It's I was saying it mainly for the boss fight, um, and they have slightly different attacks about what zombies they'll summon or what they're weak against. So for things like the Zelatoth one, you might have to worry about your sanity before it starts draining health, but for the Ulioth one, you'll have to worry about it dealing more magic damage, meaning it'll drain your magic, meaning you'll have less magic for a counterattack, and that can be kind of frustrating, so... Uh, you know, it, the difficulty kind of depends on what uh, what character you picked at the beginning. That's cool. Yeah, I was I, I was wondering what the difference would be, or how different it would be, rather. So that's interesting. 
Well, let's talk about that weird-ass final boss fight. Yeah. <laughs> what a strange thing to not fight the 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 guardian you chose, which is what I assumed was going to happen, and to instead fight Pius Augustus in this really weird like arena where you just kind of whack him once and then run away. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like you're playing tag. <laughs> it's very strange. It's it. I mean, I guess I would say it's underwhelming. I don't know. I kind of thought it was funny, at least. I don't know. It was interesting choice, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I... I thought it was neat, at least. Especially partway through the fight when all the ghosts of all the other characters show up and you play them for yes, that is cool. an attack. I, I did enjoy that quite a bit. Um, but... Like, what are we even attacking? Like, we attack him, and then we attack his weird eye thing? It's, yeah, so that's it's, the... It's weird. That's the artifact of the god that he's using to summon the god, or hold it in okay. place. So you're weakening that, and then you're weakening him, and then... You know, as a back and forth. Yeah, I mean, it, it was fun to play, which is why I'm not, like, frustrated about it. It's just, like, visually, I expected something a bit more epic, given the you know the genre this is in like this sort of lovecraftian horror stuff i was like oh we're gonna get like a weird space fight and it's just this weird ass like game of tag with this silly looking roman dude yeah at least you get the cutscenes of the gods fighting each other which i thought were pretty cool yeah totally totally um you know i it, it was it was entertaining at least and i do like that he's using a lot of the same spells you do which a lot of the enemies do that as well um which was cool. Like I like that he uses the shield spell. I you know, I would use all the time. So that 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 was fun. But yeah, I just thought it was like a really silly. It was especially visually. It just looked off. It looks very silly to me. So yeah, what did you think of the ending? Ending, especially having seen the three separate endings. Um, just talking about the basic endings. Uh, there's also technically a secret fourth ending if you die during the final boss. And um, oh. Pius wins. Yeah, no, I didn't die I'm in the final good. boss. <laughs> um, which know, fake gamer boy, I'm a real gamer boy, <laughs> just a pro gamer over here. Pro gamer. What is cool is if you do manage to beat all three playthroughs, beat the final bosses without dying, it puts that failed ending into your cutscene log where you can go back and watch cutscenes. It just puts it in there. Oh, cool. That is good. Or, I mean, you could always just save before the boss fight, go in, yeah. die, and then just start over. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I thought it was cool. I It was interesting that you were... Uh, Alex's last segment is all about her building the spell to summon the god that's stronger than Pius is on the rock, paper, scissors wheel. So you summon the god and it fights Pius's god and eventually beats it and you beat Pius, but then you're like, well, I just summoned a god into this world, which is exactly what Pius was doing, so now we gotta do something about it. Yeah, I fought uh, fire with fire. Yeah, so then Edward's ghost uh, reverses the spell into a binding spell and binds it back into non-existence, basically. God, I was so scared that that was gonna be a thing where you could mess it up and get a bad ending. So I was like, that was one of the few moments I meet. This can't be happening. You 
could mess it up and get a bad ending. So I was like, that was one of the few moments I immediately went to the guide, and it didn't say anything about that section. It was just like, land the last blow on bias, and you win. And I'm like, but 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 the second, I don't want a bad ending. <laughs> and they did it, it, it literally. It'll let you select all the runes, but it won't let you pick the wrong ones. Yeah, he'll be like, I don't think that's quite right. It's like, okay, yeah. cool, thanks. <laughs> yeah, so it's fine, but just what a weird moment. Do you get anything for seeing all endings? Um, so once you get all three endings, you get the uh, true final ending, which kind of focuses on Mantarok for a little bit. And it is the final contact- ending a failed Kickstarter? <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, so sad. No, so I want to talk about the about Mantarok real quick. Mantarok is the fourth god that controls the other three and can beat all the other three, but he is dying. And you see Mantarok actually a couple times in the game. It's this big fleshy pit in the bottom of a temple, and it just kind of looks at you with all its weird eyes. The, you can find the Mantarok alignment in Lindsay's chapter, which we, uh, which I said earlier. And the Mantarok alignment is supremely overpowered. <laughs> You know, it is designed to beat all the other gods, so of course it's going to be overpowered. But some of the spells that you can cast with it are ridiculous. Like, if you cast a restore spell under the Mantarok alignment, it restores both health and sanity. Um, That's cool. I, I, which is, it's like, yeah, it's I secret, that was right? Neat. So you can't stumble upon it your first place, yeah. probably. Yeah, yeah and cool. you have to backtrack to get it anyway. That's cool, then. I'm a big fan of that. The other big spell change, other than just dealing more damage, is the enchant item spell makes your enchantment deal poison damage. So if you hit an enemy, it will continue to damage them. That's super useful. And then the one that is really helpful if you're trying to speed through the game is the reveal invisible spell. If you cast it under the Mantarok alignment with, I think, either level 5 or level 7, then it will make you completely invisible to enemies. <laughs> oh. And you could just yeah, walk past them. <laughs> yeah, it's really helpful. That's cool. So yeah, that is, uh, that's a cool secret if you know where to look for it. Um, the game kind of, it does hint at it, like you're breaking the alignments and then this wall comes down and then it's like, oh, there's this gap that a small dog could fit through, but you don't have the summon trapper spell yet. So once you go further in the level and get it, then you can come back, summon the trapper, and get it that way. So I want to talk about the... To explain this final ending, I want to talk about the Tome of Eternal Darkness, which is this book that appears to people throughout history in order for them to sort of play a part in the game story, basically. And as they do, it allows them to cast spells. It records their journey, which then... Alex is reading in the future and nine times out of 10, they are killed in the end. <laughs> but there's a weird part of each character's story. If they don't find the book itself, like uh, Maximilian does, he breaks, he goes into a secret room and it's sitting there um, where they will enter this weird like room where there's a bunch of screaming souls trapped in the floor and then they can go claim the tome from this leathery uh, hand that's holding it. And that's important for this final ending because the final ending shows 
that Mantarok was the one that not only created the tome, but also led all of the people to play a part in this grand story. But also he was the one that led Pius to claim the artifact in the first place. Oh, okay. So Mantarok controlled Pius to claim the artifact to become a villain and then used the rest of the characters in the story to combat Pius in a way that would lead to the destruction of Pius's God in the ending. And you do this three times, one for each God, which then Mantarok somehow using his cosmic powers converges the timelines to where they're all dead. And then Mantarok is dying himself. So he just dies out. And that's how Mantarok's designed to destroy all of the gods, even though he can't be all of them at once. Uh, he just engineers humanity to use to engineer this big battle in three separate timelines and then converges them all to be dead. That's really cool. Yeah. So it, I really liked that when I saw it and it was kind of worth playing the game three times. I thought because it recontextualizes all of the game's stories where it's like, well, why did this dude even show up here? It's like, well, Mantarok was pulling the strings to get him to play a part of this story to get, you know, all of the pieces in place for the gods to fight each other to lead up to the finale of the game for all three timelines. So one character will show up and get the uh, heart of Mantarok and then another character comes by and gets it from them and then delivers it to Edward Royvis. Or one character will get will get to the other artifact and guard it until another character in a different time period shows up and gets it from them, who then gives it to another person who will then get it to Edward Royvis. And then Edward Royvis will engineer Alex Royvis to summon the other god to have them fight. He's playing with... Mantarok is controlling time and this entire story so that he can defeat his enemies. And that's kind of, you're just playing a part of it, really. That's pretty dope. That's that's a pretty cool secret final ending. Yeah, and it kind of explains why you have to play the game three times, because you have to defeat all three gods in a certain way, and why Pius was even... Because Pius is honestly not... I mean, is a, he's a dick, but like he's not really malicious at the start. You know, he just gets the artifact and then is forced into servitude and then spends 2,000 years following his master's will until he's defeated by Alex Ravis at the end. And it's because Mantarok was kind of controlling him as well, where he was being manipulated to be Zelatoth or Uliath or Chaturga's servant so that he gets defeated. And so does the God represented by him, you know? Yeah, no, I get it. That That's, that's really interesting. Well, is there anything of note you want to bring up before we move on? Uh no, I think that's about it. The again, I thought the re- the story was really interesting, especially how it jumps around time periods and how the characters interact with each other and then that added layer of the secret ending being like, okay, they're interacting with each other because they're being told to by a higher power. I thought that was really interesting. The story was kind of one of the main things that kept me going through the repeated playthroughs you know, getting to experience these characters and what they feel at least for a little bit. Cause their sections are kind of short, 
but then getting to see how they play out across this 2000 year long story. I thought that was, that was really cool. The gameplay is solid and the sanity effects are kind of cheesy nowadays, but they're still pretty cool. And all in all, I thought, I think this is really great. It's one of my favorite, uh, GameCube games for sure. Yeah, it's definitely, it's cool. Real quick, I realized, I, shout out to that moment where you finally break down the wall into the um, servants' quarters. Oh yeah, that part's fucked up. Dead. Really cool moment, though. Yeah, because uh, Maximilian, Maximilian fights against the bone thieves, which can hijack a person's body. So he gets yeah. really paranoid. And then later in the game, you discover that he went into the servants' quarters and massacred all of them because he suspected them of being bone thieves. Like, that's fucked up. It is. It's also just a really cool moment. (laughs) You're like, Jesus. Yeah, but then you're like, oh, so that's why he's thrown in an insane asylum. Not just because he's talking about these weird gods and whatever. No, because he murdered a bunch of people. Yeah, no, because he's a murderer. (laughs) Yeah, okay. It's a really cool moment. It really connects it uh, connects to the right of a story too, which I think was smart. Real quick before we end, let's talk about the rest of the Silicon Knights and I guess really Dennis Tyek story. <laughs> At least up until we know so far, because I think it's really interesting and a bit tragic. So after the Nintendo partnership with that ended with Metal Gear Solid, he partnered with Microsoft to make a game called Two Human for the Xbox 360. It was a game that he was thinking about making for many, many years, even before Eternal Darkness, but wasn't until like the technology was right. But this is where it goes to shit. So the, I guess he was just really fed up with Epic's, Epic Games' handling of the Unreal Engine. Specifically, like, he felt like they intentionally sabotaged the engine to make other games that used it look worse than Gears of War. Which is wild. Pretty big accusation. Yeah, so in order to do this, <laughs> in order to settle his frustration he sues epic games which is already a bad Good idea move now i know <laughs> some of you listening might think oh epic that new company with fortnite no epic was kind of always a big company like it is yeah, insane to me that somebody would think like oh, i'm gonna sue this company because i don't think my game looks good enough yeah because like, i'm not what? using the engine to its full capacity or like yeah I, yeah it was yeah, it was a stupid move, but so they even, I think you pointed this out, they demanded all sales from Gears of War because of it, <laughs> which is like the most petty garbage, like that's never going to happen, dude, come on. Oh my god, Gears of War, one of the biggest franchises in the world at that point, like what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, this was in about 2007. So Gears of War 1 was out and 2 was about to come out to major success, which maybe that's why they were trying to get a piece of that pie. Yeah, and if they felt Epic sabotaged them to make Gears of War look better, which makes no sense, but okay. Ridiculous. Um, so a month after they sue them, Epic countersues them. <laughs> yeah, of um, course. For them, 
not adhering to their contract in regards to like licensee fees and then like trade secrets, I guess. Um, They also in 2008, then they released to human for the Xbox 360. And then they sort of bumbled their way through developing X-Men destiny in 2011 and then Epic Games won their countersuit, which also included uh, Ep- uh, Silicon Knights tampering with the Unreal Engine and claiming it as their own game engine, which it wasn't. It was just kind of repurposed Unreal Engine code with a little bit of t- stuff tacked on. By the way, do you think this whole thing started because Dennis Dyke or somebody went, oh, these licensing fees, they're expensive. I don't want to pay them. What if we just, you know, make up some bullshit? Maybe we get away with this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really feels well, like that, right? I already sued them, so maybe he was just even more fed up and was like, "This isn't working. I'm gonna make my own thing," and then kind of just modded what he already was working on. I don't know. It was, it was mess. It was messy. But in 2011, uh, Epic Games, or no, in 2012, Epic Games wins their countersuit. And Silicon Knights is forced to pay $4.5 million, which then, before it got completely settled, was bumped up to $9 million. Oof. 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 So, as part of this deal, Silicon Knights, of course, is going to go bankrupt in a second. But before that, they're forced to destroy all code that they had from Unreal Engine 3. And they gave the court gave Epic the right to access their and check their machines to ensure that all their code was deleted. And then they were also instructed to recall and destroy all unsold copies of Two Human and X Men Destiny. That is my favorite thing about that story. My, oh my favorite God. thing. It, it, wasn't it Two Human Two? Like they put out the sequel to Two Human, which calling something too human too is already hilarious but no i don't think there was a sequel i'm pretty sure that's the case right because i remember that happening maybe you're right maybe I'm yeah tripping. no there was just the one game okay okay yeah but ordering them to destroy them not <laughs> destroy. you can't sell these anymore not you don't have to you know destroy all copies of too human <laughs> And X-Men Destiny. Oh my god, that's so funny. That's, like, sure. Is that petty? A little bit. But is it fucking hilarious? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. (laughs) Destroyed. They were also working on projects that uh, have come out recently, just info about them, known as The Sandman. Uh, The Box, which was also called The Ritualist, and it was basically a Silent Hill game but they pitched it to Sega and not Konami. So I don't know what was up with that. And a game called Siren in the Maelstrom. All those had yet to be announced, but all their, all the code for those had to be destroyed as well. Um, and then in 2014, they filed for bankruptcy. Ouch. 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 When were, when were the Kickstarters? Was that after? Yeah. So then after this, Dennis Dyack uh, formed a couple of different gaming companies uh, one, and then attempted to kickstart a spiritual sequel to Eternal Darkness called Shadow of the Eternals. And from the footage, it looks like it's almost a just remake of Eternal Darkness with different characters. Because at this point, Nintendo still owns the rights to Eternal Darkness and they could do what, what they want with the franchise. 
So Dennis Dyack was trying to capture that magic with a new sort of thing, but it failed to reach funding on both Kickstarters. <laughs> Didn't he make money from something, though? Like, he made money somewhere from some Kickstarter or something and then never delivered. I distinctly remember that being a thing. Well, yeah, both Kickstarters failed to reach their funding goals, but they still got money. Yeah, okay. So, okay. I, I don't know if it got refunded. I'm assuming it didn't, but... Yeah, because that's kind of the first time I remembered hearing about Dennis Dyack was from places like Giant Bomb or something talking about him and kind of talking about him in the same breath as, like, uh, David Cage or Peter Molyneux, you know, somebody who maybe overpromises and can't deliver. Yeah, yeah. Which is sad. It's, I you know, I... I I, you know, I want to believe that all of that's misunderstanding and, well, I guess I can't say that about the epic stuff. That just seems flat out stupid, but whatever. I listened to the interview on IGN Unfiltered, which I'll also leave a link to in the description, with Dennis Dyack. And he has, he had, at least when that interview was recorded, some other project, but I hadn't heard of it and I still don't know much about it. So I won't talk about it too much here. But he also said he didn't feel any regret about suing Epic, which seems selfish in a way because it destroyed Silicon Knights and all of his employees. And yikes. Seems like you maybe, you know, could maybe get some good faith by actually apologizing for that move. But yeah, okay, dig your heels okay. in, whatever. <laughs> yep. Okay, you know, maybe get some sympathy. But no, no, no. All right. Fine. Fine. Do you, you know. There was also some weird controversy with Gamergate and whatever with him. So I'm like, I am not getting into that at all. So yeah, maybe from what I gathered, he's not a super great guy, but it's not the end of the world, I guess. Yeah. I, I didn't look into that at all either. I just heard you say it. So, so yeah, I think the last piece of the Eternal Darkness thing is I, I mean, I mean, quite frankly, unfortunately, I doubt we'll ever see that again. I feel like, well, a lot of this stuff, we're always like, oh, would we, we speculate on a sequel or whatever. But I, I can't see that for this just because it's such a specific thing and so tied to the GameCube and the era that I can't even see, like, a re-release. Can you? Like, it, that, seemed, that would be kind of wild to me. Yeah, the only time I could see it being re-released is if they're doing some GameCube compilation, if Nintendo ever decides to do anything like that. You know, whether it's a virtual console like the Switch Online or something like that where they release GameCube games, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But it will be mainly be put up there as a piece of history, not necessarily as a selling point to a service. Yeah, I. it's a shame because it's a cool thing and you could see some of those ideas, especially with the fourth wall stuff. You know, I could see how those would work on modern consoles and modern machines playing with that UI, especially since a lot of the stuff, the modern stuff, has such, like, so much better, more fully functioning UI than, like, the GameCube or the PS2 ever did. So, like, you know, you could see developers having fun with that if they're even allowed to. That's the other thing that's kind of wild about this is hearing that interview and him, hearing him talk about how... Uh, Nintendo was concerned about the specifically the one where it acted like it was deleting your save because they were concerned that players would freak out and break something, which is legitimate. And I could totally see why you don't see game developers being able to mess with UI and stuff like that. 
which you know it's it's cool though it's cool that this existed at all you know i don't think it's fully fleshed out as i want it to be i think it's an interesting product and i'm glad it exists yeah and if they do decide to make a sequel i would love to see that um oh, for but sure realistically i don't think that's ever gonna happen <laughs> no definitely not I think the only game that I've seen actually break the fourth wall and use the like user interface as a thing to mess with was Undertale, at least the PC release, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Yeah, or you get stuff like those like billion phone phone story games where it'll create like a fake UI for your phone, like normal lost phone or whatever, which are cool, but that's that's a different thing. Yeah, um I don't know. Cool game. Really enjoyed the experience. If you can play it, do. Sorry you listened to all the spoilers, but whatever. (laughs) Just don't spend $100 for it. It's not worth that much. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed our spooky game special. Next week we have Tony Hawk... Next week, next next episode, Tony Hawk 1 Plus 2, which will be a fun, probably fun, relaxed, casual conversation about those games since there's no story or anything. And then after that, you know assuming everything gets ready in time we should have death stranding which will be a bit more substantial and so yeah i think that's all we got you know nailed down till then so yeah i hope you have a good halloween and you stay home and don't go trick-or-treating don't do it this year (laughs) yep stay in this episode is coming out on halloween uh if you were just cancel your evening plans (laughs) stay in go get a horror game you know emulate this one if you want I don't know, just just watch the media. Don't don't go out. It's not safe yet. But do take care. Yeah, definitely take care. And we'll see you guys next time. Welcome to a very spooky episode of Safe Station Radio. This 